Part 2. The Mechanism of Evolution, Chapter 7a of Organic Evolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Suzanne Grazier. On the web at BurningJoy.com. Organic Evolution by Richard Swan Lull. Part 2. The Mechanism of Evolution, Chapter 7a, Natural Selection All scientists and most other thinking men and women are now convinced of the truth of evolution, both inorganic and organic, that out of simple beginnings, when in the course of ages the earth was fit for organic habitation, life began and by a continual unfolding process there has come not only all of the marvelously adapted forms of animal and plant life which we see today but those which paleontology reveals to us and such as we know existed but of which no discoverable relic remains for our purpose then the fact of evolution is taken ab ignitio without argument together with the assumption that all organisms which do exist or have existed are blood-related, though the degree of relationship varies from the nearest to one inconceivably remote. But while the fact of evolution may be accepted as true, the ways and means whereby it has been brought about are not so evident, and have given rise to endless argument and discussion. These are the factors of evolution, what they are, by whom advocated, the arguments offered for their acceptance and their plausibility are the chief subjects of our present study. Summary of Factors To summarize the various factors which have been proposed, the list is briefly presented here. The arguments will be given in later chapters. Variation is the first and most fundamental evolutionary factor. In fact, the causes of variation are among the prime causes of evolution itself. Variation, the fact that no two organisms or parts of organisms are precisely alike, no matter how closely related, is a commonly observed phenomenon, and admits of no argument whatsoever. As it is an established truth which any one within the limits of his opportunities may demonstrate for himself, it is the progressive factor in evolution, for without variation no change could occur, and evolution would be impossible. Although the fact is not open to argument, the means whereby variation has been brought about, the character of the variations, whether regular or irregular, determinate or fortuitous, and the amount and the part of the organism affected are subjects for debate. Heredity. The second fundamental factor is heredity, the conservative factor in evolution, that which, when variation has given rise to a new character, causes it to persist. Evolution is the change produced in a race of organisms. The mere variation of the individual, no matter how profound or how beneficial it may be, is not evolutional until it can be handed on to the offspring. And this is the function of heredity. Heredity, therefore, is an essential, a basic factor as variation itself, and is just as fully established a fact, but, like variation, there are points concerning it, especially as to the means whereby a variation becomes heritable, which are still among the unsolved problems of our science. Segregation 
Another essential basic factor is isolation or segregation, the physical or biologic barrier which prohibits promiscuous interbreeding. Forms with similar variational tendencies should interbreed to perpetuate them, and dissimilar forms should not. Otherwise, the new variations would be swamped, and unless they were of dominant character, would straightaway disappear. Isolation, while not of such fundamental importance as variation or heredity, nevertheless stands forth as an extremely necessary adjunct to the evolutionary process. The first means whereby segregation is accomplished is physical. As in the instance discussed under the geographic distribution, the Galapagos tortoises, page 56, or the land snails of Tahiti and Hawaii. A second form of isolation is biological, either physiological, where, due to actual structural differences, mating is either a physical impossibility, or the germinal elements fail to combine, or if they do, the resultant offspring either does not develop or is in and of itself sterile and cannot procreate or the impediment may be a psychological one, though to what extent this may occur outside of humanity we have no means of knowing. It is doubtful whether it is of importance in nature. Among mankind, however, it may be largely responsible for the purity of such races as the Hebrews, although even under the best conditions it is not universally effective. These fundamental factors are admitted by all, but there are other causal factors advocated originally by Charles Darwin which may or may not be true, as all students of evolution do not accept them. They are as follows. Natural selection is the great Darwinian factor and is today held by certain writers, notably those of the so-called Neo-Darwinian school, of which the German savant August Weissmann was the leader, to be almost the only factor to be considered. Natural selection determines what variational lines shall persist and what shall be eliminated, and, according to the Neo-Darwinian school, acts upon small uncontrolled variations occurring in any conceivable direction of change. Nature either weeds out those forms in a race whose variations are out of harmony with environmental needs, allowing others to survive and hand down their adaptive changes to offspring, or it selects the fitter to survive or it may use a combination of the two. Not all authorities, however, accept natural selection as an important factor. For the school of mutationists, headed by the celebrated Dutch botanist Hugo de Voy, believe that the new species arise by a sudden marked changes appearing in the offspring of a normal parent. These large changes or variations are called mutations. Mutare, to change, de vrai, or salutations, saltare, to leap. Mutationists believe that natural selection, therefore, has nothing to do with species forming, but only in a general way with descent control, that is, keeping the successive generations of a species true to type when once it has been formed. Still a third, the Compromise School, believes that natural selection is important to both in species forming and in descent control, but not as the Allmacht, which the Neo-Darwinians would have us believe. They recognize the existence of various other factors working simultaneously with selection to affect the evolutionary change. Sexual Selection 
Still, another Darwinian factor is sexual selection, the means whereby Darwin sought to explain the existence of what are known as the secondary sexual characteristics among animals. As we shall see, this is the most doubtful factor of all of those advocated by Darwin, and is only held because nothing else better has been offered in its place. See page 127. Artificial Selection Artificial selection, as the name implies, does not occur in nature, but is the means whereby man has been able to produce the various races of domestic animals and plants out of their original wild progenitors. It has aided nature in the production of certain local strains of animals, mainly through a very efficient isolation, but is principally interesting to us in giving experimental evidence of the way wherein nature may have worked. In fact, it is the most fruitful source of inquiry which Darwin had at his command. With these introductory statements, we may pass to a detailed consideration of the first great Darwinian factor, natural selection. But it must be borne in mind that however much Darwinism may be assailed, the word refers only to a certain of these causal factors, leaving the citadel of evolutionary doctrine as impregnable as ever. Natural selection. This still seems to be the most important factor in evolution and has been defined as the survival of the most fit with the inheritance of those species forming adaptations wherein fitness lies. Jordan and Kellogg. Crampton says of it, natural selection proves to be a continuous process of trial and error on a gigantic scale for all living matter is involved. Its elements are clear and real. Indeed, they are so obvious when our attention is called to them that we wonder why their effects were not understood ages ago. These elements are 1. The universal occurrence of variation. 2. An excessive natural rate of multiplication. 3. The struggle for existence entailed by the foregoing. 4. The consequent elimination of the unfit and the survival of only those that are satisfactorily adapted, and five, the inheritance of the congenital variations that make for success in the struggle for existence. It is true that these elements are by no means the ultimate cause of evolution, but their complexity does not lessen their validity and efficiency as the immediate factors of the process. Prodigality of Production Perhaps one of the most impressive things in nature is the teeming abundance of living creatures. The swarms of gnats dancing in the sunlight, the great number of birds on certain oceanic islands, the immense collection of individuals in a great school of fishes, are all examples of what Thompson has called the insurgence of life. And when one realizes that he sees but the smallest fraction of the total numbers which occur, he is the more impressed. Speaking of the splendor of oceanic phosphorns which is often met with at sea, Thompson says, There is a cascade of sparks at the prow, a stream of sparks all along the water level, a welter of sparks in the wake, and even where the waves break there is fire, so it goes on for miles and hours, a luminescence due to the rapid and vital combustion of pinhead-like creatures, Noctiluca and others, so numerous that a bucketful contains more of them than there are people in London. 
On the night before the new or full moon, in the middle or latter half of December, there occurs the remarkable swarming of the Japanese paolo worm. It invariably takes place about midnight, just after flood tide. At 1 a.m., Akira Izuka relates, the worms covered the whole water as with a sheet, and were thick down to the depth of a fathom. By 2.15 a.m., there was not a single worm to be seen. The reproductive orgasm was over. The phenomenon appears to us to be a dramatic instance of the abundance of life, of the crisis nature of reproduction, and of the precise way in which internal rhythms may be related to external periodicities. But the productivity of all living organisms is far beyond the ultimate numbers which can possibly survive. And the reason is this. Organisms at their least rate of increase reproduce in geometric ratio, whereas the space they may occupy in the available food supply remain constant. Hence, without some very efficient check, the slowest breeders would soon exhaust the possibilities of food and space. For example, the elephant is the slowest breeder among mammals. But Darwin calculated that a single pair beginning to breed at 30 years and continuing to do so until a century old would produce on the average six young and would have in 750 years, barring accident, 19 million descendants. A rabbit, on the other hand, may have six young in a litter and four litters in a year, and the young may begin to breed at six months, a vastly more rapid rate of increase than that of an elephant. Among the lower vertebrates, where no paternal care is given to the young, the potential productivity is necessarily enormous. In four herring, the number of eggs varied from 20,000 to 47,000. In a cod, there were 6 million, a turbo 9 million, and a ling 28 million. And yet, despite the enormous number of offspring which might possibly be produced from a single pair in one generation, the ultimate number of herring or cod or ling remains on the average about the same. The chance of survival, therefore, of a ling's egg is 1 in 14 million. The vertebrates, however, are relatively slow breeders, for there are as a rule but one or at most half a dozen generations in a year. With invertebrates, on the other hand, the actual number of generations may greatly exceed this. And this is what Linnaeus meant when he said, Tresmuscaia consumunt cadaver equi, aquaecito aclio. Huxley estimated that the descendants of a single green fly, if all survived and multiplied, would at the end of one summer weigh down the population of China. Common house flies in the same time, six generations of three weeks each, occupy a space of about a quarter of a million cubic feet allowing 200,000 to a cubic foot. An oyster may have 60 million eggs, and the average American yield is 16 million. If all the progeny of one oyster survived and multiplied and so on until there were great-great-grandchildren, this number, 66 decillion, and a heap of shells would be eight times the size of the earth. Professor Woodruff, in his experimental study of paramecium, has maintained five-year pedigreed race, the descendants of one wild individual. In the five years, there were 3,029 generations, the mean rate of reproduction being three divisions in 48 hours. 
They were as healthy at the end as at the beginning of the culture, and had given evidence of the potentiality of producing a volume of protoplasm approximately equal to 10,000 times the volume of the Earth. It has been estimated that at the end of the 9,000th generation, the mass would exceed the confines of the known universe, and the rate of growth would be extending its circumference into the space with the velocity of light. With such extraordinary productivity on the part of all living matter, the efficiency of the check upon every species of plant or animal is at once apparent. This check, that which Darwin and Wallace both recognized and called the struggle for existence. Struggle for existence. This struggle for existence is the competition between all organisms and between each individual and the physical environment. The struggle is threefold, although in the long run it is all against what may be called the environmental complex, which includes all surrounding nature, whether due to physical conditions, to plant or animal life. The intraspecific struggle is the struggle against the organism's own kind, the internecine strife. In some cases, this is the most severe check of all, for each one's needs are precisely similar to the competition, instead of touching at one or two points, is absolute. In human warfare, the hatred is more bitter the nearer the contestants are related, as shown by Germany's Gottstraf England. So it is with the organic world. Examples of this intraspecific struggle are the young trees in a forest. As the seedlings, they may spring up over a devastated area in great abundance. Some soon die from the lack of sufficient soil or moisture due to other causes, but they are still numerous until they become so tall that their branches begin to mingle and a leafy canopy is formed, which shuts out light and air from the trees of less vigorous growth. Then the weeding out of the less fit begins and the number of trees in an area rapidly diminishes until ultimately the relatively few great trees in a mature forest are the result. In artificial lobster culture, experiments have shown that it is better to turn the newly hatched young at once into the sea rather than retain them within the limits of the aquarium for any length of time, for they are their own worst enemies, and the results of what may be called cannibalistic selection are more destructive to the race than competition with the natural environment. Interspecific struggle is the familiar struggle between members of different species, often in the nature of competition, but perhaps more frequently because one may afford food for the other. Mankind is just as much concerned in this interspecific struggle as any other form of life, but in general it is the lower organism, be it plant or animal, which is worsted in the struggle and must make good its losses or perish. That the reverse, however, is sometimes true is attested by the following note for which the youth's companion is authority. The toll of the jungle. India still pays its annual tribute of human life to the jungle. In fact, the number of deaths from snake bites or the attacks of wild animals has steadily increased during the last three years, a fact which the London Times attributes to the great floods. The rising waters have driven the serpents out of the lowlands up into the vi villages and have diminished through drowning the natural food supply of the larger wild beasts. In 1910, 55 persons were killed by elephants, 25 by hyenas, 109 by bears, 319 by wolves, 853 by tigers, and 688 by other animals, including wild pigs. 
No less than 22,478 died from the bite of poisonous snakes. The grand total of mortality is 24,878. During the same year, 93,000 cattle were also killed by wild beasts or snakes. The losses on the part of the inhabitants of the jungle were nearly, but not as quite as great as those of their human enemies and the domesticated animals combined. 91,104 snakes and over 19,000 wild beasts of various kinds were killed. Instances could be multiplied ad libitum, as the struggle is universal and no creature is immune. Although in more favored communities, with rare exceptions, only parasites and disease germs make their direct attack upon man. But every animate form depends on some other organism, be it animal or plant, for its food. So none is exempt from direct or indirect participation in the internecine strife. Environmental struggle is that against the physical environment, against excess of moisture or of drought, against extreme heat or cold, against lightning and tempest, earthquake and volcanic eruption. The eruption of Mont Pelee in May 1902 slew practically every inhabitant of the city of St. Pierre, there being but one lone survivor out of a population of perhaps 28,000 souls while in August 1883, the volcano of Krakatoa, as the culmination of a series of increasingly violent explosions, threw back the impouring sea and drove a wave of water high upon the neighboring coasts of Java and Sumatra, engulfing more than 36,000 people with their villages and lands. Ittings. The Sicilian earthquake of December 28, 1908, caused the death of possibly 200,000 people in Messina and the adjacent city of Reggio. Again, as a result of neither earthquake nor volcano, the great tropical storm of September 1900 piled up the waters of the Gulf of Mexico, almost overwhelming the city of Galveston, with the loss of about 5,000 lives. The destruction wrought by our western cyclones and tornadoes is well known, though rarely is there so appalling a loss of life as in the instances that have been given. Lightning is said to be the greatest single cause in the destruction of ranch cattle in Nebraska, due, however, in large part to the conductive power of the wire fences against which the animals drift before the storm. Thus, the lightning bolt, which would in a state of nature be local in its effect, has its danger zone very largely increased through human interference. River floods, such as those in China, take their annual toll of thousands of human lives, and doubtless of many animals as well. The tertiary sediments on our western plains, formerly supposed to be those of extensive lakes, are now interpreted very largely as river flood plain deposits. The fossil animals which they contain, and which must number many thousands, are largely the accumulations of flood victims of ancient days. Drought is another potent cause of destruction, not only of plants but of animals as well, for the drying up of a waterhole is frequently the forerunner of tragedy. Excessive cold for which the animals are not prepared is still another cause, as in the case of the numerous skeletons of the guanacos, a wild species allied to the domestic llama of South America which have been observed in Patagonia. Of these, Hatcher says, during the winter storms, these animals would be driven from the surrounding plains to seek shelter in the river valleys, and there 
beneath embankments or in clumps of bushes would be found the remains of such, as through old age or disease were unable to survive the rigors of the storm they had sought to escape. All three aspects of the struggle are, strictly speaking, with the conditions of life, and as we shall see, the interrelations of various organisms with these conditions are generally very intricate, and over against the record of a vast host of all living beings nature writes a sentence comparable to the handwriting on the wall. Thou art weighed in the balances, and thou art found wanting. But the destruction is not without distinction, for although the boldest and best of a race are sometimes the first to be destroyed, and often the slaughter is utterly indiscriminate, like that in the trenches of Flanders, or when a great Greenland whale rushes through an immense school of the delicate sea butterflies, as the pteropods are called which form the bulk of its food, during which thousands are engulfed and swallowed. No perfection of detail, nor harmonizing color, nor activity, nor any other usually advantageous variation availing one any more than the other. Nevertheless, taking nature as a whole, the fittest survive in the long run, and the least fit are the first to perish. End of Part 2 The Mechanism of Evolution Chapter 7a Natural Selection Recording by Joy Suzanne Grazier on the web at burningjoy.com.